The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here. And it's great to be with you. If you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're with us this morning. And uh, if you're new to CTK, maybe this is your first Sunday or you've been coming for a few weeks and we haven't had the opportunity to meet, I would love to meet you. Uh, I'd love to formally uh, greet you and welcome you, uh, introduce myself and you, yourself to me, And because uh, we're glad that you're here. So if you have time after the service to stick around and say hello, uh, I would love to meet you. Because uh, we're thankful that you would join us this morning as we uh, come to worship our God and we come to his word. And the portion of his word we're going to be looking at this morning is Matthew 24. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 24. There are Bibles in the chairs in front of you, and we project the passage on the screen so you can follow along there if you'd like. But we're in Matthew 24 because we're in the season of Advent. Um, the season of Advent, if you were here with us last week, I mentioned that historically uh, here at CTK, when we've been in this season, we've looked back at Jesus's first coming, right, at his incarnation. We've looked back with gratitude, and we've done this by looking at the gospel accounts of his birth or uh, Old Testament predictive passages, prophetical books that are pointing to his first coming. And that's what we did last week, right? We looked at Galatians chapter 4 and how in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, to redeem us, to save us. So we looked back at what Jesus has done, that he has come, he has lived and died and risen again for our salvation. But for the rest of our time in this season of Advent, we're going to look forward with anticipation. So we're looking forward to his second coming. You see, Advent is simply, this word simply means his coming, his, his appearing, his, uh, his coming to his people. And, and so he's come once, but he's coming again. And so we want to take time and look at that second coming. And we're doing that this morning in Matthew 24. Specifically, we're looking at the timing of his coming. When will he come? See, that's what the disciples are asking. See, the context of Matthew 24 is that the disciples are with Jesus. They're on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is teaching them. He's instructing them. They're having a conversation. And one of the questions the disciples ask is in verse 3. They say, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So you hear their question, right? Jesus, you said that you're going to go away. You said that you're preparing a place for us, but you said that you're going to return. You're coming again. So when is it? Jesus, what's your ETA? We want to be ready. That's a hard question, isn't it? I mean, don't, don't we want to know that? W wouldn't that be nice to know, like to be able to circle that date on our calendars, right? No matter when it might be, like, wouldn't we like to know when Jesus is coming? We want to know it. The disciples want to know it. And so Jesus is going to answer that for us. And he does so in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36. So if you would follow along in your Bibles. Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we ask that you would help us now to, to focus our eyes upon Jesus, that he would be clear to us, that we would understand what it means to be your people and to live as people waiting for that day when Jesus will return. And so we ask, turn our eyes from this world and turn them to him so that you would be made much of. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. The year 500 and 1260, the day February 20th and 1524, October 19th, 1533 and 1970, September 15th, 1829, 1925, 1943, 72, 79, 88, and May 21st, 2011. All right, these are all dates that I didn't just come up with off the top of my head. I didn't just pull them out of the air. These are all dates that have been associated with Jesus' second coming. That somewhere along the line, someone or a group of people have decided and predicted that Jesus was going to return on one of these days or one of these years. And in fact, there, there are so many days, there are so many years that people have predicted that when I printed them all out, it took seven pages. <laughs> Seven pages worth of predictions of when Jesus would come. Some of these predictions are based off of the dimensions of Noah's Ark. Some of them about planetary alignments, and some of them surely are simply guesses. There were few who made these predictions, who made multiple predictions. Uh, Herbert Armstrong and Hal Lindsey, they both made three and four predictions. You see, what happened was they predicted one date, and that date came, and, well, surprisingly, Jesus didn't appear. And so they went back to the drawing board, and they checked the algorithm, and they redid their math, and they, oh, I forgot to carry the one. He's coming back a few more years from now. And at the second time, well, he didn't show up again. And so they made three or four different predictions, and lo and behold, he never came. These predictions are made again and again. I've read actually one that now people are predicting he will return sometime between 2030 and 2033. So, you know, we can, we can look forward to that. But, but, but these things read, right? These predictions, these, these expectations, they, they read almost like these people are pulling dates out of a hat, right? They're just grabbing them out of the air. It feels, it feels like the reasonableness in Parks and Rec Right, The reasonableness in Parks and Rec, they predict the end of the world based on park availability for them to have their party for the end of the world. The park's available, they must be coming back. That's kind of how it feels like, right? I mean, it's humorous, it's laughable. It's like, really? He's coming back in 2033, 1540, 1520, right? It, it's laughable, and yet... 
And yet, all these predictions, all these suppositions of when he could or will come back, what they point to is something deeper in the human psyche and something deeper in the human heart. And what they're pointing to is the fact that we want him to come back, that we want him to return, and not just that we want him to return, but we want to know when. Right? We want to know when. The disciples, they asked that question. In the early church, they were asking that question. And the modern prophet, right, in air quotes, prophet, is asking that question. And so too are we. We want to know. And because we want to know, we come up with equations and algorithms and charts and theories and speculations and guesses and predictions. Right? Y'all have probably seen it all. Right? You've seen these sorts of things. I was handed a card about a decade ago that was double-sided and had date by date of all the different things that were going to come and how it would culminate in 20, 2009. Well, lo and behold, he still hasn't arrived. But what we're wanting, what we're looking for, what we're hoping is that he will come. And so we want to know when. When, Lord Jesus, will you come? And Jesus, being asked that question by his disciples and knowing that his followers would continue to ask that question, he answers them. He answers when he will come. In verse 36, he says, this is his answer. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. All right, there you have it. No one knows. Question answered. Let's pray. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That would be like the shortest Sunday ever, right? Like, let's just go. Um, no, seriously, though, Jesus tells us that even he doesn't know. Even he doesn't know. So if he doesn't know, why would we think that we could figure it out, right? Like, we, you know, we use the Hebrew alphabet, and we kind of contort it, and we kind of move it around in the sonnet numbers, and we can discern when he's going to return, yet he doesn't. So maybe we shouldn't even be asking that question, when will he return? Now, now, before we get to that, uh, the fact that Jesus doesn't know might be introducing all sorts of other questions in your mind, right? Because you're like, wait a minute, he's the son of God, he's the second person in the Trinity, how is it that Jesus can't know when he's going to return, right? It seems like he has a limited source of knowledge, and, and I would say, yes, that's true. Because we know that when Jesus was incarnate, when he took on flesh, he actually laid aside some of his divine power. That's what Paul tells us in Philippians when he says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So we see, right, that Jesus actually laid aside some of his divine power when he took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we know this, don't we? Because we know that when he took on flesh, he wasn't omnipresent. He wasn't talking to his disciples at the Sea of Galilee and at the same time, a few miles away, talking to the Pharisees, right? He was localized. And even now, Jesus is localized in heaven because he has a resurrection, resurrected body and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father on the throne of David. He is in heaven. And yet he's present with us through the means and ministry of the Spirit. But Jesus, the one who is fully God and fully man, is in heaven. And there he will dwell until he returns. And so Jesus actually set aside some of his divine power, including the knowledge of when he would return. 
So we don't know when he's going to come back. But what we do know is that his coming will be like in the days of Noah. That's what he says in verses 37 through 41. Right? What does he say? In the days of Noah, what were people doing? They're going about their business, right? They're living their lives, and, and the rain had started to fall. And the floodwaters started to rise, and people were swept away. Right? That's what he tells us. And he says, so too will be the coming of Jesus. Now, it will be coming not with a flood, but he says in verse 39, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. So just like in the days of Noah, some were taken and some were left. So too will be the coming of Jesus. Now it's here where it would be good for us to maybe um, consider a popular conception or a popular understanding of Jesus' coming and, and really a popular misconception of his coming. You see, I'm sure many of you have heard that when Jesus comes, what's going to happen is that all the faithful, all his followers, all his believers, they will be taken away, right? Will be raptured up into heaven, right? We've heard this before. In fact, I was talking to a woman not too long ago. Well, it's actually been over a decade, so I guess it was a little while ago. Um, she doesn't uh, go to CTK, doesn't live in Roanoke, y'all don't know her. But I remember talking to her, and she was talking about the state of, state of the world and how the state of the world just long, made her long for Jesus' coming. And, and she said, I can't wait for Jesus to come, and I can go and be away with him. I can be, I can be taken away. And I said, well, well, I hope I get left behind. And that response to her made her uh, a little uneasy and unsure. She had a look of confusion on her face, and then I pointed to this passage, because what happened in the days of Noah? Who is it that were taken away? It was the people under judgment. Who was it that was left behind? It was Noah and his family. The people who were in grace and forgiveness and who had God's protection and care, they are the ones who are left, and the people under judgment were taken away. And so too will it be in the coming of Jesus that those who know his grace, who are looking to him for salvation, who are trusting in his death and resurrection, we will remain. We will remain, and in our remaining, we will dwell with him forever. Now, we're going to get into the dwelling with him forever in a couple weeks, so we'll just put a pin in that for right now. But the point is, the point is, is that Jesus is returning. He doesn't say when, but when he does, those who trust in him will be with him here, not swept away. So we don't know. We don't know when he's coming. So why is this good that we don't know? I was talking to a friend this past week about this passage, and he asked me that question. Like, don't you think it would help us? Don't you think it would be good for us to know? Like, why is it good that God res restricts our knowledge of this? He doesn't provide it to us. And I think the reason why it's good that we don't know is because it causes us to trust him. Right? It causes us to say, well, well we don't have to know, but, but so long as he does, as long as God knows, as long as the Father does, then we can trust him. But I think also why it's good that we don't know is it helps us to focus 
our attention on what we need to do while we wait. And that's actually what Jesus is talking about more in this passage than his coming. He's talking about how we live while we wait for his coming. He's talking about how we wait. And we see that in verses 42 through 44. He says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when, on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So you see, Jesus gives this little mini parable. And in the mini parable, a thief is coming to steal, to break in. Right? And he says, if you knew the thief was coming, you know, maybe between 2 and 3 a.m., if you knew he was coming, then you'd be ready for him. You'd be prepared, right? You knew that he was going to come to the back door or slide open the front window. You'd be sitting at the window waiting for him, right? Like, not tonight, babe, right? That's what you'd be saying. You'd be prepared. You'd be ready. But since we don't know when he's coming, the implication is, is that we need to be ready all the time. We need to always be ready and always be looking. That's why in verse 44, 42, excuse me, Jesus says, Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You see, if we knew Jesus was coming tomorrow, like if we knew the thief was hiding under the window, you'd bet your life you'd be ready, right? If we knew he was coming tomorrow, we would be ready. But since we don't know, we have to always be ready. We have to always be prepared, always be awake. But instead of being prepared, what ends up happening to us, instead of being awake and attentive, is that we often instead become complacent. We become complacent in our waiting. Right? We start focusing only on the here and the now. It's interesting I don't know if you all pick this up, but it's interesting that when Jesus speaks of the days of Noah and he invokes this story about Noah, did you notice what he didn't say about all the people? He didn't say they were sinful. They were acting in evil ways. They were turning away from the Lord. He didn't say that, though all those things were true, right? If we were to go back to Genesis and read the story of Noah, what we're told there is that God saw the earth, and he saw the wickedness of man, and it was great. And yet, Jesus doesn't point to that. He says, what were they doing? Eating and drinking and marrying and being given into marriage. They were going about their lives, living as though nothing was coming. Now look, there's nothing wrong with eating and drinking and marriage and kids and, and working and playing. These are good things, right? They're very good things. But the problem is, is that sometimes these good things become distractions to ultimate things. And we become engrossed in these good things and forget and fall asleep that Jesus is coming. It's kind of like this idea uh, that's called visual lethargy. Maybe some of you have heard of visual lethargy. Visual lethargy is this idea that the more you see something, the less actually you see it. That the more you see something, that you become less attentive to the details of that thing. So, um, so let me uh, describe what this has been like for me. So I've shared with some of you before that when we first moved to Roanoke, coming from the Midwest, the thing that, that I focus on all the time, the thing that my eyes always move towards were the mountains, 
right? Because the Midwest, there's not mountains, right? It's like you can see for miles and miles and miles, right? It's like a Who song, right? But, but here, the mountains surround us, right? They surround us, and you can't go anywhere and not see the mountains. And so those first few weeks and months, I'm driving around, I'm going home from work, and I'm going along Brambleton, and there's Bent Mountain, right? And I just can't help but stare at it because this is amazing, right? Or I'm driving into the office, and there's Sugarloaf Mountain, right? And, and I can't help but look at it, and I think this is why it took me so long to get used to the roads, because I was just looking at mountains everywhere. But after a month, or five months, or a year, or five years, the mountains, they're still there, but they're kind of blurred into the background now. They're just kind of in the background. They're still there. I can still see their outline. But, you know, it's not like every time I drive down Brambleton, I'm just in awe. They're part of the background. They faded a little bit. Until something beautiful comes along and causes my gaze to focus upon them again. Like a sunrise. And... And the sky behind the mountain is pink and purple, and your eyes can't help but see the beauty of it. Or when the, the clouds, right, surround or, you know, they, they cloak the top of the mountain right before a storm, and, and you can't help but focus on it, right? These beautiful things, they cause our gaze, our, our focus to refocus, right? So that we can see the beauty and the awe and the amazement. And that's what Jesus is doing. You see, these good things, marrying and eating and drinking and playing and and all these things that are good, they can sometimes cause us to have Jesus' coming blurry. And in our passage, he's refocusing us. He's refocusing our gaze so that we can see his coming clearly. He's calling us not to be so engulfed in today that we forget that his return could be tomorrow. And so what he does is tells us how we wait. Stay awake. Be ready. Orient our lives with the expectation that Jesus could return now. That would have been awesome. (laughs) Right? Like that would have been the best sermon ever if that would have happened right there. (laughs) Like, what a way to go. But, but he didn't, right? So, so we're still waiting, but, but we wait with the expectation that it could be today or tomorrow or in a week or a month, right? We prepare ourselves for his coming. And we know we should do this because we do this with other things in our lives, right? We prepare for the future. So think about the Cold War. I didn't live through the Cold War, right? I wasn't born yet, uh, but I've read about it, (laughs) and I've talked to people who did live through it. Some of you lived through the Cold War, and especially the 1960s, right, with the threat of uh, the Soviet Union and the Cuban Missile Crisis, and what did people do, right? They built backyard bunkers, right, that had canned food and and transistor radios, and, and kids learned to duck and cover because those schoolhouse desks were going to protect them from the bomb, right? So... So that's what people did. They prepared for the threat. But what's amazing to me about that, thinking about that, is how much preparation went into the possibility of something happening. Like, no one knew. No one knew if war would come. 
No one was sure that the bomb would get dropped. And yet, think about all the preparation for the possibility, for maybe, for perhaps. And yet we know with certainty that Jesus is returning. We know with certainty that he's going to come back. He said, I am returning. I am coming to you. And so we are to look for his return, and we look for his return by living faithfully today. You see, that's what our waiting will look like. It looks like living faithfully today in all the things he's called us to. Because after our passage, we're not going to read it, but after our passage, Jesus gives us another mini parable. And in this parable, he indicates who is the one who's ready for his return and who's the one not ready. And he says that the faithless man, the faithless worker, the one who thinks that the master won't return anytime soon, that he waits for the return of the master by living self-indulgently, by doing whatever he pleases, who is not mindful of his master's coming. But the obedient servant, the one who waits properly, is faithful in all the things his master has given him. And that's what we're to be. Faithful waiters working unto the Lord. So we live and we work and we eat and we drink and we have children and we get married and we study and we love and we're kind and we're generous and we do all of these things because these are the things that the Lord has called us to do. We do them all for the glory of God while we wait for Jesus to come. Paul sums it up in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what we are to do. Or Brother Lawrence, the 17th century monk, he once wrote, I turn over my little omelet in the frying pan for the love of God. Isn't that beautiful? He makes his omelet, right? His scrambled eggs, a little bit of bacon for the love of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, we do for the glory of God. That is how we wait. That is how we wait for his coming. And so, so if you're in medicine or you're an accountant or you're in sales or you're a teacher or you're a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad or you're a student or whatever you do, wherever you've been called, you do it faithfully unto the Lord. You see, to be ready for Jesus' coming isn't to stare off into the sky and to try and, and to, uh, to read the stars, but instead to be ready for his coming is to be faithful in our waking and our sleeping, to be faithful in our working and in our resting, to be faithful with our minds and our words and our actions, and to do all for the glory of God. So that whether he comes tomorrow, or in a year, or in a millennia, he would find his people ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you that Jesus is returning. That that is the promise that you have made, and we long for that day. And so we ask, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly so that we would dwell with you. But until you come, we ask that you would help us to focus our gaze, our attention on the fact that you are coming 
and that you would help us to live actively waiting in this day, doing all things for your glory so that we would be found ready, we would be found waiting, we would be found with joyful expectation at your coming. So we ask that you would do this, and we ask all this in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said together, Amen. Amen.